This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts. Welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer and good friend, Frank Reddy. How you doing today, Frank? I'm good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, this is part two of episode number two of Cinema Fix, focusing on the movie Drive, and I thought part one went pretty well, so I'm looking forward to discussing it in more detail with you. Uh, If you're listening to this and you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong episode. Be aware of that. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, you should be aware that uh, this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general non-spoiler discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one. We're not going to bother repeating a lot of the general stuff we said in the first part about the premise and who's in it and whatnot. Uh, we're just going to assume that you've seen the film, or at very least, listen to part one of this show, and, uh, and, and we're just going to dive right into some more in-depth analysis. So, if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of our episode on Drive. Now, um, Drive is the new film directed by Nicholas Reffin. It stars Ryan Gosling. If you listen to part one, we already went over the plot and stuff like that. I'm not going to repeat myself. Uh, let's just pick up where we left off. But first, here's another clip from the film. I'll think about it, okay? But I want to meet the kid first. That's all I ask. I want you to meet somebody. Listen, whatever you do like about the car, don't say anything. I want to drive the price down a little bit. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. Nice to meet you. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. Okay, Frank, there's a lot of stuff I feel like we could talk about with Drive. So, I, I, you know, I'm not going to set a, a time limit for this discussion. We can go however long you want to go. But the one thing I wanted to discuss with you is the music and the score and the overall aesthetic of the film, I got this real intense 70s and 80s vibe from the movie. I mean, even on the poster, you can see that the the font yeah. used in the credits is that kind of cursive, that pink cursive writing that, that almost looks like something from, a, from an 80s John Hughes movie mm-hmm. or something. And then you just the way that the that the that the film is is lit and the the synthesizer music, yeah, in particular, I got I the, the music reminded me a lot of Vangelis's score from Blade Runner, oddly enough, just with this these weird synthesizer melodies and tones, um, and then there's these weird like techno '80s pop songs that come in at various times, and I was wondering what you thought about that because I really loved it. I thought it added this really unique layer to the film, almost like Refn is trying to pay homage to the old crime films of the 70s and 80s.
I loved it. Um, I thought that it, for me, it kind of ripped it out of kind of like a modern setting and kind of set it apart as its own little world. I never thought about in the film, you know, what's going on in the outside world around here. Why aren't the police getting more involved? Why does nobody go to the police? It kind of really set it up as its own little contained universe. Um, and I thought that the music just illustrated that perfectly. Yeah. And, it, you know, it just the, the, throughout the whole film, throughout the, the costumes and everything, it almost felt like this was something that came out in the 80s. I mean, yeah. Ryan Gosling spins the whole movie pretty much in that scorpion jacket. I wish he didn't have that scorpion jacket. I thought it was really cool. It almost sets him up as like this this classic, I don't want to say Western, but like this classic hero with the full garb, and he's got that just kind of that 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 archetypal look about him. You know, I can imagine if there, if there was a crime film that came out in the 80s, you know, about street gangs or something, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to identify a character with a jacket or with an article of clothing that sort of defines them. And here he is being defined by this uh, this jacket with the scorpion on the back, yeah. which I thought was really cool. I did wonder occasionally, hey, maybe you should change clothes. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, other than that, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, he pulls off the look. I mean, I'll give him that, and it does set him apart. It's like uniquely his own. It sets him apart. It's like what you were saying, kind of like that lone gunman who rides into town, and it works. Yeah, I, I got the, like this this weird sort of like Steve McQueen kind of vibe. I kept thinking about Clint Eastwood. Clint, was, Clint Eastwood. There you go. Yeah, yeah like a Clint Eastwood. Um, like I don't want to say. Dirty Harry, almost yeah. maybe a little bit, but um, like for me, I w- I kept thinking of like Steve McQueen and Bullet. Yeah, you know where he's kind of set up and he's trying to figure out what's going on and he's got the car. Yeah, and he's all about the car chase. I felt like this was there was definitely some influence of a uh, Bullet in the movie. One thing that I don't think you would have found in in a lot of these crime films from the seventies and eighties, at least not to the extent we get here, is some pretty brutal. And bloody violence. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was tough you know, to watch. The, the, the first half of the film is kind of kind of slow. Yeah. It takes its time, sets it up. It's it's this cool little, you know, movie with cars and criminals, and there's this nice little vibe to it. And then once the violence starts... It doesn't stop. It's very... It's it, but, but the interesting thing is that it's never like these long, drawn-out... Very shootouts. quick and very ugly. Yeah, it's just quick. It's ugly. There's usually lots of blood. Yep. And then it's over. And it, it it really is surprising. And it's and it's like a wake up call. Like you'll get sucked into the to the tone and the vibe of the film, and then suddenly blood will be spurting out of some guy's neck, and you're like, whoa, some what girl's just happened? Head just explodes. Yes. I mean, how brilliant is that? I mean, what kind of sadistic person do you have to be to hire someone as beautiful as Christina Hendricks? Yeah. Uh, who plays Joan on Mad Men, uh, for the listeners out there that, that, that don't know the name. Um, how do you hire someone like her, you know, kind of uh, muddy her up a little bit so she doesn't look quite as glamorous as she does on TV? No. And then blow her head off with a shotgun relatively quickly after we meet her. She's not in the film for very long. No, she's not. And this is the difference between Andrew and everybody else. He'll use words like brilliant to describe somebody's head being blown <laughs> off of their body. Well, it's brilliant because it was so unexpected. I mean, when I, when I think of Christina Hendricks dying, I don't think I'm going to see 
her whole the side of her face get blown off. I imagine, oh, if she has to die, maybe it'll happen off screen or maybe it'll be a typical squib explosion. But the film is way more graphic and brutal than that, even with its leading ladies. No, I'll give the director credit. I mean, he really went all out in trying to, I think, make it feel, make the violence feel like it had consequences, to make it feel like there was something at stake. Because you really never got the sense. I mean, you can't watch somebody's head explode and think, get the sense that, you know, oh, he's just going to get shot in like the arm or something. And then he'll, you know, he'll go to the hospital and he'll be fine. You're worried that he's going to get his head blown off, too. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing is that um, to, to me was that that one scene where Christina Hendricks gets her head blown off, I believe that's the only scene with gunplay. And all of the rest of the major deaths involve knives and stabbing. There's so much stabbing that happens in the film. And it's really shocking and, and really uncomfortable. What about the heist with the... Uh... Standard? Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything involving Standard and Christina Christina Hendricks' character uh, involves guns, and that's it. Yeah. And the rest is just people getting stabbed in the throat or in the the arm or just blood spurting. Forks? Forks. Oh, my God. Fork in the eye. Yeah, no. You should not have a meeting among criminals in a restaurant. No. No, no, don't do it. I want to do it at like Chuck E. Cheese or someplace <laughs> so where someplace with lots of families yeah, around. It's just like it's not going to happen. <laughs> Empty Italian restaurant, though, bad move. <laughs> yeah, not a not not a not a good place to to have your meat if you're not sure if you're going to live or die. But yeah, it it really did add this new layer of intensity to the film. I think. Yeah. Because you you were sort of, I I was I found myself just mesmerized by the overall aesthetic of the movie yeah and then there would just be this jolt of violence and the sound at times was incredible no the sound design was great whenever guns were fired it was so loud and so shocking i jumped when standard was shot because it just came out of nowhere was like oh my god what is that what is that noise what is happening and for the rest of the film i was just kind of like on edge like oh man Someone could get stabbed in the face at any moment, and it's not going to be pretty. And I, I, you know, you never know. It, it could, it could happen so fast. No, I mean, I thought it, a lot of directors would cut away, like show a flash of like the knife going forward, and then they cut away to like the body dropping to the ground, and you would never see most of the damage. As where this movie, you're with them. That you see the fork go right into the eye. You see the blood streaming out. The guy's screaming. Yeah, it, it's not pretty. I mean, I will give Refin credit. For that, he doesn't glamorize the violence no. or fetishize it in any way. He just kind of presents it as straightforward, quick, and brutal. Like, if you got stabbed in real life, this is what would happen, and it would not be pretty. No, it would not for those of us who were on the fence about getting stabbed in the eye. <laughs> um. Yeah. You know, let, let me ask you about one one violent scene in particular. There's this key moment in the film for the character that occurs in an elevator. Yeah. He's with Carrie Mulligan, the woman who has touched him in some way. He feels this connection with her. There's been this sexual tension between them for the whole film. And they're in an elevator with a guy that he knows is there probably to kill him. Yeah. So he pushes Carrie Mulligan into the corner, passionately kisses her, and then turns around and proceeds to stomp this dude's face in. Like, literally destroy his head. There is yeah. nothing left. His skull is completely mush yeah. by the end of the scene, and it's pretty graphic. 
pretty disturbing. And it's this key moment because it's at this point that Carrie Mulligan and the audience, to some extent, realizes, you know, this isn't like the hooker with the heart of gold. This isn't the criminal who's really deep down is is a good person. This guy is intense. This guy has no qualms about murdering somebody and murdering them in a very brutal way. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think up until that point, you could have made the argument that he um, – He's just doing he it for the just, money. He was just doing it to slide by. Right. I mean, he had a, this policy where, he, you know, he doesn't go into the robbery. He doesn't carry a gun. I think you could argue up until that moment that any violence he had to do was in a way not justified, but it was it was what he had to do in order to survive in the moment. But he, in this elevator scene, I mean, he crushes that guy's skull well past the point where I imagine he was still alive. Right. I mean, no, like even yeah. after you can tell the guy's got to be dead, he yeah. just keeps stomping and stomping and stomping. And it adds this really interesting layer to the relationship between him and Carrie Mulligan because then there's that whole idea, well, can they really be together at this point? Now that she's seen his true darkness, will she accept him? And at the end of the film, there's the subtle implication that maybe they could still wind up together if what ultimately happens at the end with him getting stabbed didn't occur. You know, she does go to knock on his door to see if he's still around. There's... An implication that she's still interested in maybe seeing him again. Yeah. But I don't know. How did, how did you feel about that? To me, when he pushes her up and kisses her against the elevator before he, he attacks that guy, you know, you could look at it as in he's not sure who's going to win the fight. He knows he's about to start a fight with this guy and he thinks maybe he could die. At that point, I was so convinced that he was a badass and that he knew he was a badass. I think he knew that he was going to win the fight. And in my mind, he was kissing her because he knew at that moment there was no going back from what he was about to show her. Like, I think he knew he was going to cross a line with her that probably would put the kibosh on anything going forward. That's that's a good point. I never really thought of, about it like that, that, you know, that he knows once I do this, yeah. I cannot wind up with this woman, this woman who could potentially help me redeem myself. Yeah. Once I take this step that needs to be taken, there's no turning back kind of thing. That's interesting. That's a good point. I never really thought about it like that. And it does add an interesting, very tragic layer to that moment, Yeah, I think, because... It, it, it's outside of his control. And the, the the really tragic thing about the film, in my in, in my mind, is that he does everything right. He's yeah. a stickler for the details. He doesn't want to get it over his head. He does everything he's supposed to do. It's only because Ron Perlman's character, Nino, is such an a-hole yeah. that he just keeps getting in deeper and deeper and they keep sending guys after him. That, to me, is the truly tragic thing, that if there is honor among thieves... He was honorable, and yet he still wound up at the other end of a knife at the end of the, of the film. Well, I think you can make the argument is what did him in was the personal relationship with Carrie Mulligan's character. If you look, he's very clear from like the first scene on that his rule is: I give you five minutes. You're either I, I don't come in with the gun. I don't care what happens. You're either in the car in those five minutes. I drive you for five minutes. You're out of the car. What happens to you then? I, I don't give a crap. With the husband, you know, he helps. Carrie Mulligan's husband out of loyalty because he cares for her. He doesn't want to see his situation end up uh, killing her kid, end up killing her. And, and that's why he gets involved. I don't think it's a situation he ever would have gotten involved in. Because like Andrew said, the, the film goes out of its way to establish that he's very cautious. He's very careful. He's very bright. He does nothing that could compromise his position. Right. And, and in a normal situation, if he didn't 
know Standard, if he didn't know that Standard was Carrie Mulligan's husband, if he didn't have any connection with them, when Standard gets shot, he probably would have just driven off, and that would have been the end of it. Yeah, it would have been a clean, clean getaway. Right, but it's because of that connection that he ends up killing him. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting dynamic to his character. And there's this really interesting um, idea brought up in the film about the idea of a handshake. Yeah. And at the beginning of the film, when when Ryan Gosling, uh, when, when his character first meets Albert Brooks's character, Bernie, uh, Bernie offers his hand. Yeah. And at first, Ryan Gosling refuses and then ultimately does shake his hand. Yeah. And that, to me, is almost like the moment of, of, you know, he shook hands with the devil, yeah. basically. And once you shake hands with the devil, there's no turning back. And I also find interesting about that scene is that Brian Cranston's character, Shan, wants to shake Bernie's hand. But Bernie says, no, you know, I'm too good for you kind of yeah. thing. And what ultimately kills Brian Cranston is a handshake. He meets Bernie. They talk. Bernie offers his hand to shake and then slices Brian Cranston's arm open and and he bleeds out. So that idea of the of the handshake with the devil being what ultimately kills you, I think was a really interesting concept and, and a really interesting just just like a a very literal image related to that theme. I'd agree. I, I think that's a great observation, you know, and I think that they set that up with his character perfectly uh the Sh- Brian Cranston's character Shannon where um you know, he, he's just so, he's almost too earnest to be a criminal where he, you know, I think he, there's a scene where Ryan Gosling chews him out after the guy comes to try and kill him in the elevator. He's like, how could you be so stupid as to tell that guy this information? And he's like, well, you know, I was just trying to figure this out. And I thought if I told him the truth that you were just doing it for the girl, he'd back off. Right. And even as the audience, you're going, you have got to be kidding me. Right. But, you know. Because, you know, in the beginning of the movie, I was going back in my mind going, all right, well, maybe Brian Cranston, he keeps going on about how much they could do with that money. Maybe he's going to sell him out for the money. And it turns out that he honestly is just that naive right. and that stupid. And I thought that was a great twist. I mean, I mean, he's like – I think, I feel like he's, he's like what, what any member of the audience would be in yeah. that situation. Okay, you're, you're, you're in a tough bind. Let's just explain to the guy what, what it is and we can sort it out Yeah, without realizing that – no, in in the movies and maybe to some extent in real life, when you're dealing with a mafia and with organized crime, you know, you can't really just talk stuff out. Yeah. And that's what's great about Gosling's character is, you know, he's so jaded to the point where he doesn't want to shake that guy's hand. And, and he's also so silent. He doesn't yeah. want to reveal anything about himself. He doesn't want yeah. to reveal anything about the people he knows. He's very much just, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'm going to keep to myself. That way nobody gets hurt. And the thing is, he's absolutely right to kind of keep that distance. I mean, he keeps his mouth shut. It's Shannon talking that got the situation spiraling even further out of control. Right. This really dark and tragic paradox because by not talking to anybody, Ryan Gosling can stay alive. Yeah. But he also has no human connection. And yeah. it's once once he opens himself up to, to Carrie Mulligan, he does have that connection. He, he, he is more self-realized as a person yeah and he he's starting to, to grow as an individual but ultimately that's what gets him killed and so there's this really kind of tragic message to the movie well, we about how he died we don't know if he dies right well we yeah we'll talk about that in a sec but yeah. but there's this there's this really pessimistic idea that 
if you open yourself up to other people, you're ultimately going to get hurt, if not killed. You know, um, and but 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 let's talk about the, the ending. What you just brought up, right? It ends with him confronting Bernie, played by Albert Brooks. Uh, he he does kill Bernie, but he also gets stabbed in the gut. And there's this really interesting shot of him sitting in the car, bleeding out, and the camera just stays on his face and his unblinking eyes for like thirty seconds. And you're just sitting there and you're thinking, he's dead. He's not blinking. He's staring straight ahead. He's been bleeding out. He's dead. And the camera just sticks on that image for a long time. And I thought, okay, now he's going to cut to black and in the movie. But then, no, after 30 seconds, Ryan, Ryan Gosling's character blinks and drives off. And the final shot is like a point of view image from inside the car of him driving along a dark road. And so there's that question of, is he alive or is he in fact dead and this is almost like his soul still driving and still searching for connection in the afterlife or something like that i think that's an interesting metaphorical way to look at it personally i think more inclined to view it i think if you're savvy as a viewer you think all right they're they're obviously doing their best to go against every um cliche that's ever been established the like the indie the art house thing to do would be to not let him walk out of this alive would have him sit there and die in the car and i think it's almost more shocking that he gets up and has to go on and how complicated that makes his relationship with the girl um where he goes now because if you think about it if he is alive his entire life is still destroyed well right and in some ways it's still even it, it's still even more tragic than death yeah. because he's still just driving. I mean, the title yeah. of the film is Drive. He's just always moving. He's always in motion. He never has time to stop and make a connection with anybody. And so the final shot, whether you want to read it as literal or metaphorical, is kind of sad. Just that idea yeah. that he's still just moving in darkness, moving with no clear destination, just sort of not really connecting with with anybody um it's so in that respect it is a very tragic ending even if you read it as a literal acknowledgement that he's still alive no i agree i mean i don't think there is any it it raises just such a bunch of great questions it's like how can he have a relationship with the girl you know at this point his job is a stunt driver you gotta i mean i guess nobody ever finds out about his criminal activity but except for the girl but um you just got to wonder how he keeps all that going. Right, right. So, yeah, really interesting ideas and, and themes brought up by the film. There's a lot to, to chew on. It's the kind of film I could potentially see myself watching again Yeah. To, and maybe getting something something new out of it. It's a really, really well-crafted movie. And if you like violence, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you like violence, this is the one for you. Yeah, um, especially if you like stabbing. <laughs> like stabbing, if you like blood, if you like gore. Right. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't advise getting anything to eat before the movie. Is there anything else you want to you want to say about Drive before we uh, wrap things up here? You know, I just would say again that it, I think it's well worth the price of a ticket. I, you know, I was really impressed by how well made it was. Um, you know, I really think that it's writing and directing at its best. So go see it. Definitely check out Drive. I think that'll uh, wrap it up for part two of our episode on Drive here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we will be discussing the new uh, Brad Pitt film, Moneyball, 
We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can uh, email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes now. So if you like the episode, definitely subscribe to the show so you can automatically get the new episodes when they're released. And also write us a review it to help get the word out about the program. We, we, we would really appreciate it. And you can also donate to the show through the website. Uh, you have no idea how much it means to us. We really do rely on your support in order to survive and in order to keep developing new content. It, it does cost money to put this stuff out there. So if you enjoy it, consider throwing a few bucks our way uh, to help us out, you know, and we, we'd really like the show and the network to stay listener-based and listener-supported if, if we can. Now, um, Frank, where can people find you online? You, you are on Twitter, correct? I am on Twitter. I think it's FJReady. Twitter.com slash FJReady. You sound unsure, like you don't really use Twitter a whole lot. Uh, that would be an accurate statement, Andrew. <laughs> I opened a Twitter account for class and have yet to go back on it after the class ended. <laughs> So all uh, right, so be sure to follow FJ Ready on Twitter if you don't want constant updates. <laughs> and that may or may not be me. Yeah. So <laughs> all right, well uh, I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at www.thecoolshopeffect.com. I will be pu- publishing a lot of uh, short reviews of the films I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival this past weekend there. So be on the lookout for that. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com/writerandrew. I do update fairly frequently, so if you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know that you're a listener, and I'll follow you back, and we can we can continue the dis- the discussion and the conversation about Drive and, and other films. So uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Cinema Fix. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I am Andrew Johnson. And I am Frank Reddy. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.